Well, uh, before we jump into our sermon today, which is going to be in Romans 11, um, I just wanted to bring to you a little bit of a family chat. Uh, a couple of words on where we're at uh, in the going home campaign. It's been three years. Can you believe that? Three years since the going home campaign. And uh, so we've kind of closed that out now. We've had the majority of the three-year pledges. Those were kind of coming up at the end of uh, May, beginning of June. And, and so the going home campaign has come to a conclusion. Uh, for those of you who weren't here with us, or for those of you who were and can't remember three years ago, right? we were in Embassy Suites Hotel. Uh, we were about 800 people at the time, 850, somewhere in that range, attendance-wise. And we were working through what God had in store for us for those next steps. And uh, we were starting to fill out embassy suites and knew we needed to get out of rental mode and into a building in some way, shape, or form, right? And so we had some dreams. We put together some thoughts. We rallied that all together. And, and uh, well, actually, here's the pie chart that we used initially as a plan of where we were headed. So you can see uh, 2.8 million in cash and land property is where we were at that point saying, we'll see what God has in store and where he's taking us. We had been uh, fairly faithful as an uh, elder board in bringing together any extra money that had come in in the general fund. We moved some of that over when it made sense against uh, to a, like a building fund. So we had 2.3 million in cash saved. And then we also had a half a million dollars in property that had been donated at that time. And uh, wasn't this property, it was another property. We ended up uh, kind of doing some land swap to be able to get to this property. But we had $2.8 million in cash and property to start the campaign. That was some lead gifts, some stewardship from uh, general fund giving and the property given. All right. We were hoping, as you can see, we were uh, praying for a $1.3 million of pledges to come in. And uh, we were given some guidance that at that time with finances the way they were going, that $1.3 million, that's about what we had come in in an annual basis for giving to account on that for pledges. So that's what we were looking at. And uh, and then $4.7 million in a loan. Just so you know, we came up with that number by taking the amount we were paying for rent and saying, if that money went to mortgage, what would it be? And uh, $4.7 million, all right? So we basically just traded our rent for a mortgage that gave us this loan, and then we were going to get into whatever building God would make uh, see fit to uh, allow to happen cash-wise. So we put that together. We went through the campaign, and uh, I'm telling you, uh, I will never forget being at Embassy Suites, sitting in the front row uh, as we walked through this six-week series and had just come to a conclusion on that stewardship series, and uh, my wife and I sitting up front as we just said, and so let's see what God does. And uh, we opened it up to the body to bring pledges forward over and above giving, uh, continuing to give to the church regularly, but this is over and above to a building. And the number of people that came forward, the uh, amazing time as families came up and gave a pledge together, prayed together, closed it out and went and sat back down. Just a powerful time and uh, just a, a sweet time for the body to begin to take that next step. And uh, so a little bit after that, we started having a bunch of people come and ask us questions. And the question wasn't, when are we getting started? The question was, and are you going to change the design of the building and make it bigger? A lot of more people are coming. And uh, we had a ton of people rolling in, and, and it was amazing to see what God was doing. We actually got up uh, close to a 1,000 people pretty fast post-stewardship campaign, and uh, it was obvious we needed to do a little adjusting. So you can see that total number comes out to about $8.8 .8 That was our plan. 
Then we recognized things wouldn't quite fit if we continued to grow as we saw it there. So we ended up putting like three extra rows on the back of the worship space. So those of you sitting in the back few rows of there, you're welcome. And uh, added a few rows back there and uh, all the way around. So that gave us a couple hundred more seats. And we added space to the atrium. And uh, that would allow everybody that was in this worship center to go into the atrium and fit and uh, do that. And then we put another uh, 100 plus parking spaces out into the parking lot. Um, can you imagine if we didn't have those extra 150 parking spaces? Right. Uh, thank the Lord for those. And the parking team all says, amen. <laughs> right. And uh, it's been great to see what God's done and even really just given us some insight on where to um, change the building and make it a little bigger so that this thing would work for us as we moved into it. And uh, that was the original plans. And the $8.8 million building got a little bigger, like I said, and then we did some work on the property. And uh, so where are we today? Okay, and here's the summary of where we are today. So notice $2.8 million cash and land is where we were. We now have $7.1 million cash and land paid down. That's all equity. That's ours. Thanks to you and all that you've been doing. That is an awesome move. Amen. Praise God for that. Yeah. That's a huge deal. So the $7.1 million, that includes uh, the property that we originally had, the cash of $2.3 million we originally had, plus the pledges coming in from all of you guys faithfully over those three years. And then on top of that, the elder board along the way as there was excess in the general fund doing some move of general fund money over to that. And uh, we will continue to do that going forward, by the way, as well, when there's excess in the general fund, moving that towards paying the loan down. All right. So that's 7.1 million that's paid off in equity. Have that done. Notice in the bottom uh, right over there in the green, it says $800,000 retired loan. We have already retired $800,000 out of that $4.7 million loan. We're a year and a half into the building and 800,000 is paid down. Praise God for that. And uh, that's your faithful giving. That's the continuation of us being faithful in stewardship and handing that over. And uh, praise God for it. Our goal is to see that thing go down as quickly as God sees fit. And uh, we're going to be true to that. All right. Excited for it. So 7.1 million, 3.9 million. The total comes out to an $11 million property is about what we're sitting on. Just a little bit less than that, like 10.95 or 10.98, something like that. We'll round her up and call it 11. All right. And uh, so that's where we are. And uh, just excited to see all that God's doing. Um, please hear me on this. Um, it is not about money. Okay, and we have to be really careful with it. Money is a tool that allows us to be able to do a ministry. And the ministry is to set hearts and lives on fire for Jesus Christ. So the faithfulness in the money has been great, but it is so much more. It is people getting fired up for him, worshiping him with all they've got. Check this. Last year, we had uh, over 200 people accept Christ. We had 160 people get baptized, 161, just amazing hearts and lives, numbers being changed as God has rocked this community. And how many people just kind of stepping up their faith, getting more fired up for him. Uh, We're just excited for it and uh, love it. So continue the faithful giving. We appreciate it. It's been a huge deal. I've actually had this question between services. Hey, I didn't even know about it. I didn't even have a chance to give to the going home campaign. I came later in life and, and uh, can I still give? And uh, no, we don't want your money. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. If you want to give to the building, that's fine. If you want to do that, uh, you can just put going home in the check memo and that would get over to the building. But do know this faithful giving to the general fund 
we will, when there's excess, move that over and pay it against the loan. So those are two real simple ways to continue to give. Just faithfully give to the general fund. We will move when it makes sense. Or if you want to give something very specifically to the building, you can do that. All right. Um, the big deal is this. Yes, there's some money behind it. Yes, there is some possession and ownership in taking care of it. But please, let's just not make this a club with a property. Let's make Jesus Christ worshipped in this place. So a couple of statements I wrote down. Uh, thank you. Thank you for allowing God to move through you. Your faithfulness, your pledges, I'm just telling you, they have changed the shape of this church. We were renting at Embassy Suites Hotel and getting kicked out four times a year. Do you remember that? I mean, we were getting kicked out every, they tell us each year, you're going to get kicked out six to eight times this year. Great. And I would always come down with a number of them, two or three, but it's nice to have our own space and uh, it's nice to have this place, your faithfulness. Um, thank you for being faithful in your pledges. As you made some pledges and commitments, as you financially committed your family to what would make sense and then to follow through on that on the next three years, thank you. And a thank you for making Harvest a place where we are on fire for Jesus Christ. Most of all, thank you for that. That this is a place where God is worshipped, where Christ is made much of, and he's continuing to do an amazing work. And all of God's people said, that's a summary to the Going Home campaign. Let me just pray here. Lord, again, we are in awe in all of all you're doing and all of all you're saying in the lives and hearts of these people. We just pray that you would continue to be glorified in this place. Thank you, Lord, for your provision. Thank you, Lord, for your answers as we wrestled and struggled and leaned on you. We're in awe of all that you've done. And Lord, we just pray now as we go forward from here, may this be a place on fire for you. May we be faithful with the money in the backside, but Lord, may we be faithful with hearts. May we see people worshiping you. It's in your mighty name we pray these things. We love you, Lord. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, that's a a nice segue into our uh, passage for today as we jump into the end of Romans 11. And uh, we're in a series called Gospel Deep, His Glory Elevated. His glory elevated, right? We're making much of who Jesus Christ is, much of who God Almighty is, and his glory elevated as we close out Romans 11 here. In fact, today we're very specifically going to be looking at worship and what worship should look like from you and me as we look at all that God has just revealed to us in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So, uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 11, verse 25. We've got ushers coming forward. They got Bibles in their hands. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. They'll get one to you, all right? Just raise your hand. They'll get a Bible to you. What kind of worship should we have? First, humble worship. God's mysterious plan of salvation reaches the world and has not forgotten Israel. Humble worship. God's mysterious plan of salvation reaches the world and has not forgotten Israel. Uh, Salvation, it's so much more than just about me, right? And and like we could say that, we're like, I praise God that he's done a work in my life and I must be awesome. And all of a sudden we're missing it. God must really think highly of me if he, and that is not at all the way we should be going about it. Humble worship is where he's taking us. So uh, let's start in verse 25. 
He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Like, when you walk in front of the mirror and you look at it and you're like, shoot, I am awesome. Uh, Let's not do that. Uh, Let's not take a look at ourselves in the mirror and reflect upon all that God's doing and think somehow it must have to do with my greatness or or the fact that Israel or others are set aside. I must be really extra special and uh, we're really missing it if that's where we're at. Um, You might enjoy your time in front front of the mirror. Uh, Lest you be wise in your own sight. Uh, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He said, I want you to understand this mystery. Uh, this is God. He's like, hey, you guys, I got a secret. And I'm going to share it with you. And I want you to understand what I'm doing. And it's unbelievably broad and deep. Here we go. And then he puts it into a couple parts. He says, there's a partial hardening of Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay? And so, let's just break it down. Partial hardening of Israel. There's that word hardening again, right? We heard this in Romans 9. We heard it early in Romans 11. And let's be careful with that word. If we take the wrong definition for it, we can get some bad theology going. And so, hardening, what does it mean? Well, it means the person has a will and an ability to choose their own direction and they choose away from him. That's the sad part. Every single human being choosing away from God. Done with him. I've had it with you. I want my own way. I will sin and it will be about me. And hardening is when God is still working with them in the midst, the blessing, the care, the protection, the provision, even on a rebellious soul, mercy poured out and then at some point goes and that's it for the mercy and they now run off their own course exactly where they want to be in rebellion against him and in full out sin their inclination of their heart taking them away from god hardening it's when god removes his mercy hand and they run to their own demise and there's a partial hardening of israel there, there's a partial hardening of How much of a hardening? Let's not lose it. It's not all of Israel is gone. It's a partial hardening. There's a remnant that is saved. We see every generation, there's some level of people being brought to belief in Jesus Christ. He's working with the remnant along the way, a partial hardening and a partial saving, if you will. There's some that he's bringing through, partial hardening, until... Right, And every time you see that word, we know what it means, right? Whatever we were just talking about has a time frame and then it's going to stop, right? Partial hardening until. And so something's going to come up that's going to change it all. And he tells us what it is that's going to come up. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in, meaning God's got a plan where he's reaching into every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's pulling out some elect to be able to say, you are putting my mercy on display. 
And as the fullness of those that he has called comes in, the Gentiles, ones from every tribe, tongue, and nation represented, until then, well, he's holding on with Israel, right? And, and But then he tells us after that, something's going to change. And a question, it starts with partial hardening. Where does it go to? I mean, it could go to complete hardening. I'm done with that nation. And uh, But that's not where it goes, is it? Take a look at the next piece. It says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Um, There are those who say that uh, God is done working with Israel. It's just with believers in the church today and and broad-based, anyone who comes through Christ and that's it, and he's done with Israel. Um, I'm just telling you Romans 11 is a problematic passage for that position. All right? That is not where we stand. And uh, God is doing something with Israel. He's doing something partially, and he will be doing something with, it says, the all Israel will be saved. Something's coming down with Israel, man. And uh, all Israel. Now, there are some differing opinions on this, and uh, I think there's one that really makes the most sense. All right? And uh, what does it mean, all Israel? Well, it clearly it doesn't mean every single Jew everywhere, whether they believe in Jesus or not. That would be a bad application of Scripture, right? We're told very clearly in Romans 10, unless you believe and confess, you're not saved. So when it says all Israel, we have to know this is a believing and confessing crew, right? And uh, so we talked about this. Remember back in Romans 9, where it talks about not all Israel is Israel. Remember that? Not all Israel is Israel. And uh, what does that mean? It's like saying, well, not all men are men, right? And we get that phrase. We're like, oh, yeah, right. Like not all men, you know, they got the DNA, but they're not men. They don't have character. They don't have heart. They don't have commitment, right? Not all men are, are men. Well, not all Israel is Israel, right? And so some of Israel is absolutely this heart for Jesus Christ, believing in him. They're trusting in God Almighty and the DNA of Israel. They are the combination of both. And I think this is actually saying all of those that believe in Jesus Christ as Israel, Jews, all of believing Israel coming to him in the end, the elect in that final generation, a mass number of people, please, it's going to be a big number. It isn't going to be small. It's not some little tiny remnant thing coming along. In fact, if you look at Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, you get kind of an inkling to it. Uh, Revelation 14 talks about 144,000 Jews that are saved, like, boom, saved. And they don't just go up into a room in the back and just start playing cards together and do nothing else, man. Then they go out and they share Jesus Christ with like everyone everywhere. And think about it. Elijah, we just saw it earlier in chapter 11. It says there's a remnant of 7,000. Revelation's talking about 144,000. And that's just the starting point. Okay. And so we're going to see him coming in by the hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions. We're going to see tons of Israelites becoming the true Israel, the all Israel. And it's going to be an amazing moment of massive salvation for God's people. Here's the mystery. Partial hardening until fullness of the Gentiles come in. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people believing in Jesus Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All of a sudden, the fullness has come in. Only God knows when that is. But in the moment that fullness comes in, 
Then he starts doing a massive work with Israel. And he says, all Israel, the final fullness of Israel coming in. Massive salvation there. That's God's plan for the nations. It's his little secret. And he just told you in Romans chapter 11. And uh, God doing an amazing work. And uh, he says now a quote from Isaiah 59, 20 that Paul pulls out here. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Uh, Notice Jesus Christ here, really the deliverer and uh, banishing ungodliness and taking away their sins. Right. Are you hearing it? Remember when John looked at Jesus Christ and he said, behold, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ. And yes, he will be doing that for believing Israel as well in a massive way. And uh, yes, deliverer. Yes, banishing ungodliness. And uh, notice it says from Jacob. uh, This is the name of a man who represents all of the nation. Underneath Jacob were the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this is a great example where a name represents the nation. And Isaiah quoting it that way. And uh, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness. uh, and And he will take away their sins. Huge promise of hope. There will be a saving of the nation of Israel. And it's going to be massive. So he goes on and he describes a little more. What's that going to look like? And what about now? And he says, well, as regards the gospel, they are, present tense, enemies of God for your sake. They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Uh, what? What does that mean? Right? And uh, so let's just break it down real simply. It's not very complex. He's saying, listen, when the gospel message comes up and it's like Jesus Christ and you need to believe in him, Israel as a whole in general was in this response. No, thank you. I don't want to have anything to do with him and uh, going to get there on my own righteousness. That's where I'm headed. And down with this faith thing and the Jesus Christ and the cross thing. In fact, we're the ones who help get him on the cross and we don't want to have anything more to do with him and down with that. And uh, enemies of the gospel and not wanting to lean on Jesus Christ. Uh, That is today where the majority of Israel stands. And there is a remnant being pulled out in each generation. But in general, that's where they stand on the other side of it. But as regards election, they are my beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Election is a work that's occurring in the broad spectrum of time. And I'm just telling you, God's saying this. I am working with this nation, Israel. And I am putting my promise out there and it will be made good on. And while in the moment you are seeing many hardened or running away to their own sin, I am working with hearts and bringing remnant to it. And I will be bringing in the mass numbers, the all elect of Israel. They're going to be coming. And don't you forget it. And I've made a promise and I'm making good on it. So yes, enemies of the gospel. Yes, absolutely, my beloved. I'm still doing something with that nation. Uh, Anybody who says they're not is going to have to do a little trickery with this passage to try to get around it. There's a lot going on with Israel. And uh, so he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable, whichever way you want to pronounce it. Both ways are in the dictionary. So there you go. Irrevocable or irrevocable. Like it can't be taken away. 
In fact, just so you know, in the original language, the Greek sentence starts with that word. That's the sign of emphasis. It starts out, irrevocable are the gifts and the calling. And that's a big deal. He's, everybody say, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. He's trying to say, I want you to understand what I say will happen. And uh, what are the gifts? Well, specifically, uh, here we're in context with Israel. And so you probably go back to Romans 9 is a great spot where in verses 4 and 5, he kind of lists out the Israelites and they had the blessings like the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenant and even Christ himself being born through their lineage and right the gifts, the privileges of being an Israelite. It says, and the calling, the election, the predestination, the calling, these words lump together. They're God working from the beginning of time to pull some out and have them be a demonstration of his mercy. And uh, he's like, I'm just telling you those promises, those decisions, I don't go back on them. I make good on them. Always make good on them. And, uh, you know, I just wrote this down. Three reasons you can know that God's promises are irrevocable. Number one, he knows everything. Just hang on. We're going to work to a, to a reasoning here, okay? He knows everything. Past, present, and future, nothing ever shocks him. He knows all of it, right? Second, in the midst of knowing everything, he is absolutely righteous. He is pure. His promise is pure. His yes is yes. His no is no. When he says it, he means it. That's it. God is righteous. He will not lie. He will not sin. So we have God knowing everything. We have God righteous in everything. And then the third one, he says, I am the Lord your God. I change not. I change not. Now let's put those together. So when he makes a promise, he knew everything. And he doesn't end up in the middle of it losing character and lying. And, and he never changes who he is. His promise can be 100% trusted. And uh, just so you know, you and I, we make some statement about, oh yeah, absolutely. I'll be there by 11. Right? But you don't know anything that's going to go on in the next 24 hours. You don't know the traffic. You don't know the, how much gas is in your tank. You don't know anything. And we're trying to say, that's my best intent, right? Given the fact that I'm a clueless little one that knows nothing, I'll try to be there by 11. Right? God's like, just so you know, I know everything. I never run into something where I go, oh, what should I do about that? I have it all. And I am absolutely righteous. And I never change. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. God knows what he's doing. Amen? That's our God. Notice what he says after it here. Um, Not only are the gifts and the calling irrevocable or irrevocable, whichever way you want to say it. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, right? Israel says, "Uh uh-uh, don't want anything to do with them. The word now gets spread as they push in on anybody trusting in Christ and they get spread out and they share Christ and many starting to get a chance to come to him and Gentiles everywhere because of the disobedience of Israel, you have the saving of hundreds of millions of Gentiles and a huge benefit from their disobedience. It says, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. 
Their disobedience meant mercy to you. Their disobedience in the end is going to mean mercy back to them. As there's a whole crew of Israelites who see this going on and God at work with the Gentiles and faith that saves and a displaying of righteousness and getting that the works of righteousness are not going to get it done. And they rush to his side and they believe in Jesus Christ and disobedience bringing mercy again. That's God at work in the plan, right? He takes even the broken and moves it to something glorious for him. And a huge deal. So it says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We better talk about this word consigned, right? God's consigned all to disobedience. Just so you know, that does not mean he took the person who was willing to be good and said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm making you be disobedient. Everybody say, that's not it. That's not it. Instead, he's saying, I am allowing you to go to your end, your direction. In that regard, his sovereign hand on it. If you want a word for uh, God's sovereign hand allowing, you can use this word consigning. That's really what it is, right? We talk about sovereignty as God makes, God allows, and God disallows. Three pieces, right? And that God allows, well, that's what's going on here. He's allowing that sin. Yes, that can, that's going to go on. That disobedience I'm going to allow it to take place. And that person's heart, they're expressing their own will to run away from God underneath his sovereign hand. It's a huge deal. Don't lose God's sovereignty in the midst of our sin. And it says God consigned all to disobedience. Yes, he's in charge. And yes, our disobedience sits under his sovereignty. The end. And it says that he, like here we go, purpose statement, that he may have mercy on all. Wow. God has a purpose in letting sin take place. And uh, how many times have we been in a spot where we're like, I don't get it. And why would God allow? And what's up with? And just so you know, there's a lot of those kinds of questions we're never going to be able to answer. God has a view to knowledge that we just don't have. Can we all admit that? You in there? And so he sees things we don't see. And as he allows something to happen, but I'm just telling you in the midst of it, he tells us a little of what he's going to do. He's going to put his mercy on display to all. And uh, there's a couple of different ways you can look at this and both of them very biblical and accurate. And uh, the mercy on all, like every single person is going to taste of his mercy in some level. Okay. Like every day, whether you're in utter rebellion against God or not, His hand of mercy is in your life. He's patient even as they rebel. Have you ever met that guy? Where he's like, I can't stand God. But his work is being blessed and his family seems really cool. And he's got some nice kids and a really nice house. And it maybe even paid off. And what gives? How come that guy doesn't have any of the problems I have? And he's totally standing against God. And God's hand of mercy. Patience in the middle of that one's rebellion. And uh, yeah, we better believe God's hand of mercy on every single person. Absolutely. And then on some, he even says in the midst of an outright rebellion where not one human being will turn to him, he lifts some up and says, now I put on display an electing mercy. You are going to see my mercy on display that changes the inclination of your heart. And he puts that on display as well. And uh, mercy on display to all. Yeah, at some level on all. Here's another way to look at it too. And uh There's another statement to it. If you look before it, you see the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he says he's going to have mercy on all, right? And so in fact, 
having mercy on all the Jews and all the Gentiles, like on the nations as a whole. And, and it could mean that as well. It isn't exactly clear which way to go here with scripture. There's nothing that makes you have to go one way or the other. I'm just telling you both biblically can stand. So whichever way you want to look at it, know this. God's putting his mercy on display when he allows sin to take place. That's a biblical truth. That's what's being said here. Wow. God's got it in hand. And uh, all too often, we uh, look at life and we struggle with, it must be all about me, right? I mean, he's here for me. He's here to make my life easier. He's here to make, and then we get this soft Jesus that's going to walk with me and change my life. And we need to be really careful with that. He is here for us in that regard, but know this, it is never to end with us. It is about his glory. It needs to always be turned back to him. This whole plan of salvation is not about a perfect or an awesome little individual. It is about God bringing the nations forward to be demonstrations of his mercy. And all of God's people said, that's our job. To become mercy spotters. Seeing mercy everywhere in this world. And showing off God's mercy. That's our job. Humble worship. That's what we're called to. And uh, alright. It's a dude. His name is Samuel Morse. And uh, he's the inventor of the Morse code. And uh, the telegraph. Right? So he made the telegraph where you send little electrical pulses and you get the messages and it like changed the world. It allowed communication across massive distances and people were raving about the telegraph and just an awesome privilege. And here's just a little side note. So then we go forward into phones and we like learn how to talk on these wires, right? And then we make cell phones and then we start texting again. What's up with that? I don't know. (laughs) So telegraph, it was this huge moment where this communication across electricity was now available. And they're like, you've changed the, the world. And what do you have to say about that? You must be really proud, Samuel. And, and he says, I have made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone. And he was pleased to reveal it to me. I praise God. Samuel Morris. Is that your kind of worship? Humble worship? Anything I'm doing, just praise be to God. I'm amazed with the privilege that he gave me in the moment and he could have given it to anyone else and it's all about him in the end. And look what he's doing. Bring it back to him. That's the worship we're called to. Humble worship. So where are you at? Are you looking in the mirror a lot and liking what you're seeing? Or are you seeing God Almighty above and behind it all, his hand on it all? I humbly worship you. That's what we're called to. Humble worship, number two. Glorious worship, glorifying worship, sorry. Glorifying worship. His ways are so above our ways. His wisdom is so above our wisdom. It's all about him. Glorifying worship. His ways are so above our ways. His wisdom is so above our wisdom. It's all about him. He starts out, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
Uh, or if you say it in the King James, if you got to memorize from there, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's what inscrutable means, past finding out. And um, huge statement here, depth of the riches. Like I'm just telling you, no matter how deep you go with God, you'll never get to the end of his awesomeness. Never. Constantly a massive wealth of riches to learn and dig into, to get more and more of. That's your God. For all of eternity, always learning more about him. Never, ever getting to the end of it. Every single day is going to be another day in heaven where you go, I never knew that. Really? Look at that part of who God is. And then you're going to, I think this is what we're going to hear all over heaven all the time. Did you know? Right? We're going to hear that. And then the other guy's going to be like, dude, I've been in heaven for 400 years longer than you. I already knew that. Did you know this? I didn't know that. I'm going to go check that out. And God always explaining more and more of himself, revealing more and more of himself, and the depth of his riches, stunningly satisfying. That's our God. Oh, the depth of the riches. And then it says, and wisdom and knowledge of God. Knowledge. Like, he knows everything. Everything past, present, and future. We're like, yeah, I know that. Well, let's put it this way then. God never learns. Because he already knows. He's never being schooled. He's never sitting under. He's never figuring it out. God knows it all. That's your God. His knowledge is stunning and unbelievable, massive in size. He never learns. He never looks and goes, I never knew that. That's not where your God is. That's his knowledge and wisdom. That's knowledge applied, right? Knowledge applied. So like every single situation, God knows exactly what the right thing to do is. There isn't one time where he doesn't know what to do. God knows exactly what's called for. And and his knowledge being applied into it as he sees the breadth of all that's going on and knows every single person and every single circumstance and knows exactly what the right thing is. That's God's wisdom. That's our king. Notice how Paul starts the whole thing. Oh. Oh. Every time we start the sentence with oh, we're like, it's a giant exclamation, right? Oh. Oh. This ice cream's awesome. Right? We start out with a giant O and we're trying to say something big about it, whatever it is you like. I'm allergic to ice cream, so I wouldn't say that, but, but you're like, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I'm telling you this. My God is stunning. This is Paul's tap out at the end of Romans 9, 10, and 11. I've given you the tip of the iceberg and he's blowing me away with his sovereignty and his massiveness and that's my king. And now let's just do a little drop back here for a second. Little overview of what is blowing Paul away. Romans 9. God's sovereignty. His hand over everything. His hand in everything as he works for his glory in everything. God absolutely in charge. God is sovereign. And he absolutely has it in hand. We said this last week. Have you ever noticed this? When God's sovereignty is mentioned, it's always secure. 
right? When we talk about eternal security, it's always when we're talking about God's sovereignty over it. Romans 8, those that he has foreknown and predestined and called and then he justifies and glorifies 100% locked up guaranteed. Or how about this? That nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Always about God over it all, his handiwork in it. God is sovereign. And, uh, but on the other side, Romans 10, and man's responsibility. And we need to believe and confess and share. And we are called to work in this moment out our salvation, right? It is not about simply saying, God's got it, I'm done. It's about saying, look what he's done. I'm pouring back to him as a thank you offering. My belief, my confession, and I'm sharing with anyone I can. We are called to action. And the best way I can say it is there's a tension between the two. And any passage you look at that's looking to the man's responsibility side is going to challenge him to work out that tenuousness. Because man, you don't earn any of it. God's giving it and it's his mercy alone. Just lean on him and trust in him and give it your all. God's awesome. And anytime you talk about God's side of it, it's like, and he's got it. It's secure. Right? And uh, so what's the best way to look at those together? I think Philippians 2, 12 to 16, great passage. And that just says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Right? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Just a couple of things we see uh, Paul toying with and explaining out here a little bit to us. And uh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's what he's saying. Okay. Now he goes on. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Like, God shares little bits with us, but we really don't quite understand everything going on in his head, right? Can we just admit that? That's a weak answer. Can we admit that? All right, so God knows things we don't know. That was easy. Who has been his counselor? You know, is God ever sitting up there and he's like, oh, and I don't know what to do. I better call Tim. Yeah, that's not what's going on. Y'all need to know that. And uh, God does have it in hand, and we do not have it in hand. We are not his counselor. And it says, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? God owes no one anything. That's what he's saying. Uh, We owe him everything. God owes no one anything. Amazing how true and pure he is and how in need we are. That's this passage. All right? And he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, like his spoken word put this place into existence. He is creator God. And through him, his presence holds it together. Colossians 1, nothing as we know it without his presence. He is unbelievably all over this and all about this. For from him and through him and to him. Yes, it is all about his glory. It is. It is all about his glory. How much we try to make it all about our comfort, it is not. It is all about our king. It is all about his glory. It is all about him getting what he deserves. It says, it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Not some things, not most things. All things about him and his glory. All right? 
To him be glory forever. Amen. That's a worship moment. And I just want to tell you, this is called a doxology. That means uh, basically the study of worship, doxology. This is a worship expression. The church is not to be primarily theological, where we just learn truths about God. We are to be primarily doxological, worship-oriented. So any knowledge we gain from Scripture needs to move us to worship Him. That's where we need to be. It must be about His glory. It must. That's where we have to end. His glory must be elevated and our worship must put him on fire in our lives humble worship glorifying worship that god will be made much of and uh i just wrote this down at the end here colossians 2 10 says we are made complete in him we uh, have nothing without him we have everything with him we have complete righteousness, complete forgiveness, complete adoption, complete transformation, complete satisfaction, complete worship. Life with your Christ. Do you believe that? When you're not tasting of the complete part of it, it's time to get rid of whatever of you is in the way and get back to your king being glorified by you. That's where the satisfaction lies. And... Uh, So I just wrote this to close it down. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Just say, he is enough. Let's say it bigger, all right? He is enough. That's our God. Are you ready? So I'm going to need you to respond with that as I say these statements. Here we go. Uh, His power. His provision. His salvation. His peace, His glory, Jesus Christ, man, He is enough. His glory must be elevated. His name must be raised up in all that we look at, in everything we struggle with. May Jesus Christ be given preeminence in our life that He be glorified that we see his mercy unveiled in this world and we speak of it everywhere we see it praise be to god that is romans 9 10 and 11 his glory elevated with an exclamation point and all of god's people said let's pray